Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. The true symbol of the United States is not the bald eagle, it is the pendulum. And when the pendulum swings too far in one direction, it will go back. 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 It will go back. This is More Perfect. I'm Julia Longoria. Before we started working on this season, we asked you, our listeners, to share your questions, your concerns, your general thoughts about the court today. And going through the many lovely voice notes we got from you, I stumbled upon this one from a teacher. Hi, guys. Um, My name is Carly Howie. I teach American history to high schoolers. Talking about how she explains the court to her students through a metaphor we mentioned in a past season. And I specifically referenced the idea of the American pendulum and how, you know, we're kind of swinging back and forth where, you know, different different groups with different ideas hold power at different times. And we can look back and say... How know, today's court is on one of those swings it takes from time to time. And I ended this school year... Um, reinforcing that idea of the pendulum and, you know, we will eventually swing in a more, you know, liberal direction. And how difficult it can feel when you're on the other side, waiting for the pendulum to swing back. So today, we are going to replay an old episode of More Perfect. Fun fact, it's the very first one I ever reported. When we looked back at a time when the court took a swing in a very dark direction. When the chief justice wrote what might just be the most horrible decision the court has ever made. And at that point in time, at the highest court of the land to make that decision, that was putting a period on sort of this overarching battle between um, the North and the South, the forced slavery and the abolitionists. And so when this happens, now you start seeing civil war popping off. And how two families, caught in the crosshairs of the decision, came together 160 years after the case was decided. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Julia Longoria. 
this is more perfect. And today, we are taking a trip back in time to an earlier era of more perfect. I had only recently been hired onto the show when this guy... Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. ...sent me on my very first reporting trip. Snow freshly laid on the ground. To dig into the story behind one of the most infamous decisions in Supreme Court history, Dred Scott v. Sanford. This is a case that split the United States in two. So the case in question is the Dred Scott case. Which, if you ask people... I was wondering if you've ever heard of uh, the Dred Scott court case? The Dred Scott. Sounds familiar. Doesn't go well. Nothing coming up? Man, I don't know. My high school history teacher would be really mad at me right now. I don't know. (laughs) I don't remember anything about it. Remember nothing? You get a lot of people who are like, was that like a civil rights thing? Probably something to do with segregation. You're you're warm. I'm warm? Or was it Obama? Like the name had some familiarity, yes? Yes. Dred, okay. What does that mean? Dred Scott, it's a name. I don't know. This is the first time I hear it. United States of America. So what happens a lot of times is that people don't actually understand why they're free. Um, so Dred Scott is one of those fundamental decisions that, is, that lays the groundwork for the reasons why we can live in a multicultural society. This is Ellie Mistal, More Perfect's legal editor back then. But to really understand the case, you've got to go to a place called Fort Snelling. It's a small army base, about 15 minutes north of the Minneapolis airport. Snow freshly laid on the ground. And our producer, Julie Longoria, took a trip there. Right over here. And this guy? I'm Richard Josie, manager of programs here at the Minnesota Historical Society. Gave her a tour. Yep. So what are we walking into now? So what you're getting ready to see right now is... uh. The space that we think, you know, is probably where Dredd and Harry Scott, you know, where they live. Before we go in, can you just sort of set up when in time are we? What's happening? This is the 1830s. We're 30 years out from the Civil War. By the okay. 1830s, about half the states in the Union have slavery, about half don't. So it's this question that's kind of still unanswered. Like, should we be a free nation or should we be a slave nation? So there is a real tension here. Um, and there is a real understanding here that this might not work. And just as we're about to reach this breaking point, an um, army doctor named John Emerson... A white guy. Definitely a white guy, <laughs> slave owner, steps into free territory and arrives here to this army base um, on a hill. And he brings with him his one slave, Dred Scott. Um, and now we're actually inside the fortress, if you will. And, um, you know, all of the stone, all of the windows, um, it's, it's kind of like, whenever I come here, I have this kind of cold feeling, even when it's hot outside. He walks us up to the back of this one squat building on the far end of the base. Can you describe the the room? I think we're probably looking at a maybe seven and a half foot ceiling. Um, Wood grain floor, wood clapboard floor um, with stone walls. It's a tiny room, a little bigger than a king bed. 
There's a fireplace, a little table, some redwood cabinets. So this is a this is a this is a home. This is a kitchen. This is a laundry place. This is, you know, your one-stop shop. And the reason this room is so important is because Dred Scott, living in this room, for the first time in his life, he got a taste of what it might be like to be free. I mean, obviously he was still a slave, but Dr. Emerson would leave the fort for months at a time and have him work for other people. He had a degree of autonomy. And Harriet and Dredd met here, right? When he was here, he met a girl. 1836-7. Yeah, they met here. Richard Josie likes to stand here and imagine just how that might have went down. I can imagine, you know, Harriet, uh, you know, having been here and, uh, and Dredd being over by the store. And, uh, and having a conversation with some one of the other black guys that was here. And uh, I can imagine him saying, did you see the new girl that's here? Here she comes walking by. Jim, who is that? I'm going to make her mine. Like, I can imagine him saying that. Over the next few years, Dredd and Harriet had two kids, both of them girls. And I personally, I think that, that what happened was Children seem to change everything. So what ends up happening is that Dr. Emerson moves Dred Scott and his family back to Missouri. They're back in a slave state. And Dr. Emerson ends up passing away. And it seems like his wife is going to maybe sell Dred Scott's daughters. So what Dred and Harriet Scott end up deciding to do, the whole reason we know Dred Scott's name, is that they decide to sue for their own freedom. That's a lawsuit that Dred Scott had every right to believe that he would win. There was a doctrine called once free, always free, that the minute your foot landed in the snow of the north, the minute you and your owner walked into free territory, you were free and you could not be returned to a state of bondage. This was a well-known legal argument. And in fact, Dred Scott won at a lower court. So it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says, no, you're still property. And the chief justice of the Supreme Court, Roger Taney, very famously, he says, the black man has no rights that the white man is bound to respect. Taney in an amazingly broad decision, not only slams the door on Dred Scott's freedom, he slams the door on the potential for any African-American, free or not free, to ever have full citizenship in this country. And at that point in time, at the highest court of the land to make that decision, that was putting a period on sort of this overarching battle between um, the North and the South, the forced slavery and the abolitionists. And so when this happens, now you start seeing civil war popping off. Now, as far as Dred Scott, the case is concerned, speaking legally, the 13th and 14th Amendments did come along and overturn it. But like that line, like the black man has no rights that a white man is bound to respect. Like, you can't overturn that line. And these days, you know, as the pendulum swings and we see a rise in blatant, overt 
white nationalism. There's more than three dozen people injured. That line still hovers above us all. But suppose you're a direct descendant of that case, of that history. Suppose your name is Scott, or your last name is Tawny. What do you do with that? Particularly now, like, what do you do with that history? Do you ignore it? Is it not your problem? Or do you address it? And if you do, how? Coming up after the break, we walk into a hotel lobby in St. Louis and get an answer we just did not expect. The archives at Carnegie Hall hold treasures from our cultural history. In the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk, we use these items as touchstones to explore how the past shaped the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and I'll be joined by historians, performers, cultural critics, and others to look back at the iconic venue's legendary and sometimes quirky history. If This Hall Could Talk, from Carnegie Hall and distributed by WQXR. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, this is More Perfect. I'm Julia Lagoria. Back to the first story I ever reported for More Perfect. Here's our old host, Jada Bumrad. Okay, now we come to the reunion. As she was reporting the story, producer Julia Longoria was doing a little Googling, located a couple of Scott Tawney descendants, and then found out that they were actually planning to meet up to have this kind of historic summit which was like, we thought was bananas. So she went, and it was bananas. And as soon as she came back, she sat down in the studio and told Ellie Mistal and I all about it. Um, so where to start? So I walked into this Hilton Frontenac Hotel in St. Louis. You know, your classic hotel atrium with like a very weird carpet pattern <laughs> like and I walk in and it's like hello hey, how are you it's almost like a conference oh, <laughs> and I'm greeted by the great great granddaughter of Dred Scott wow and uh yeah it's just amazing I mean literally this is our inaugural sons and daughters of reconciliation event name's Lynn Jackson She's the main organizer. This was always a dream that I had about 12 years ago, that if I could meet other descendants, wouldn't that be cool? Then she immediately tells me... I'm a networker. I'm a networker. I, I'm going to connect you with everyone here. <laughs> That's what I like doing. And this is the Blow family right here. And immediately, she introduces me to these three people. What's your name? Uh, Mimi LeBourgeois. John LeBourgeois. I'm Ashton LeBourgeois. Who are descendants of the Blow family, the first family who owned her great-great-grandpa. Wow. Here's some more fun guests. Hello, guys. Come on in. She also introduced me to the great-great-great... And you're the great-great... Sixth great-grandson of Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. Grandson of Thomas Jefferson. I met... What's your name? I'm Bertram Hayes Davis, hyphenated. A descendant of Jefferson Davis. You know, the guy who led the Confederacy against the Union in the Civil War. And everybody's hugging. <laughs> 
laughing. It was wild. Almost like it sounds like almost like a meaning of the utopian society. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And the whole idea, everyone kind of wanted reconciliation. 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 That was like the word of the day. Reconciliation. 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 I think a lot of the country needs that now. You know. So I think a lot of people. And so I'm wandering around and, and greeting these people, like going up, shaking hands with random people. And then I meet this one guy. My cousin, Dred Scott Madison. Lynn introduced us. Yes, Dred Madison. I am the great-great-grandson of Dred and Harriet Scott. And I look in his eyes, and I was like, holy shit, those are Dred Scott's eyes. I mean, there's really only one picture of Dred Scott that exists, and... It's from around 1857. He's wearing a suit, staring straight at the camera. And his eyes are, like, almost glassy. And his pupils are really big, and it's just striking. I felt like I was looking right into those same eyes. Have you always known that you're related to Dred Scott? Yes. yes. What's your relationship to that history? What do you, when you think about it, what do you, what do you feel? I have mixed feelings. Based on what Chief Justice Tawney said and the decision they made, uh, you're a subhuman species with no rights a white man is bound to respect. Blacks have no rights that white men are bound to respect. That still resonates today, in my opinion. What really hit me the hardest, and it's hard for me to even think about this because it it just bothers me, was the Trayvon Martin. This kid was walking home from, from a store. Wasn't bothering him, wasn't breaking any laws. Someone decided to follow him, pull up on him, and ended up murdering him. That guy parked his car, got out of his car, invaded this young man's space, and murdered him, and used the stand your ground law. And that's a perfect example of, my, your ground is yours until I decide it's not. I meet Dredd just as he is about to shake hands for the first time with the family who owned his family. A whole lot of stuff that goes through your mind. Are they going to be, are they going to be buttheads? Are they going to be arrogant? <laughs> or that? that all goes through your head, but you, you know, you have to approach people. You have to approach people for who they are. You, you got to have an open mind. And one of the most striking things I learned from Dred Scott Jr., 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 and also from his sister Barbara... I'm Barbara McGregory. I'm Dred Scott's great-great-granddaughter. ...is that the Dred Scott history was actually something that was kind of kept from them. It was a hush-hush thing because the Dred Scott decision, I don't know if you are understanding what that was, that, that was the last straw that sparked the Civil War. My dad, when they were growing up, they had death threats. They couldn't tell anybody who they were related to. Your dad, that generation, this was like a hundred years after the decision. That generation had to keep it a secret? That's his great-grandfather. His grandmother was Dred Scott's daughter. Dred Jr. 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 told me that his dad was actually partially raised by Dred Scott's daughter. Aunt Lizzie. Whose name was Lizzie. Tried to hide the fact. In fact, someone told me she was, she might have been kind of mad when um, my, uh, grandfather and grandmother named my father Dred Scott because she was in hiding. You gotta remember when she was uh, six years old, they went in hiding for five years during the trial, her and her sister. Because the whole basis of the trial was he didn't want his family split up. So when he lost the second appeal, he, he sent the girls into hiding because he didn't want them sold away. So Lizzie stayed pretty much undercover. She lived in a, a little 
little room, but she always had the, the shades closed. So Dredd and Barbara told me their parents never talked about Dredd Scott. They never had a picture up in the house. They never even knew what he looked like. In fact, as we were standing there in the lobby of the Hilton, Dredd pulls out his phone. Photos of Dredd Scott. Okay, pictures of Dredd Scott. And he brings up the photo on Google. Wait. <laughs> That's the actual photograph. That's the actual photograph. That's the actual photograph, which looks, let's see. It looks like this. That's it. Yeah. So can you describe it? Uh, really dark eyes. Um, he's wearing a suit. Wait, is that the first time he's seen the picture of Dred Scott? No, it's not the first time. But it seemed like he was noticing things in it for the first time. Looks really dignified and stern in that picture. But he looks, he looks like a man who's gone through it and is ready to go through some more. He does. Okay, so at the end of the night, I end up at the hotel bar with another descendant. So it's. What are you being interviewed for? I'll let her answer that. Uh, no, I think you should answer that. <laughs> so, the Dred Scott case is a famous Supreme Court case, and the Chief Justice who ruled in the case was named Roger Brotani. So I'm a Tani. Charlie Tani is the great-great-grand-nephew of Roger Brooktani, who is the chief justice who basically denied Dred Scott his freedom. He's kind of a tall guy, white hair. I'll take, I'll take one more gin and tonic, okay. Glasses on tip of his nose. You know, we had a leather-bound original copy of that decision. And he was actually sitting next to three descendants from the family who originally owned Dred Scott. They were like, come join us. And so to my left is the descendant of <laughs> the people who own Dred Scott. And to my right are the people who kept Dred Scott enslaved. Are you not going to eat one of those? I'm not. Please have them. And they were all just Thank you. having gin tonics and crab cakes. I was trying to remember that quote. Faulkner, he says, the past is never death. It's not even past. <laughs> That's great. Can you can you describe the first images you saw of Tawny? Eventually, I steer the conversation back to Charlie Tawny's ancestor, Roger Tawny, the Supreme Court Justice. Well, we had we had uh, we have pictures of him hanging on our ho- when I grew up in the house. It was up on the wall, and it had I remember it had this uh, light over it. Unlike the Dred Scott family, Charlie Tawny and his daughter Kate, Kate Tawny Billingsley grew up knowing exactly what Roger looks like. His skin flapped over, and he had these long jowls, but he was also a thin man. He was very sickly. That's something I really recall. He looks like... um, That spooked me. That shriveled-up little old man who lives up in the house on the hill that hardly ever comes out of his house and all the kids are scared of. (laughs) (laughs) You grew up, I mean, you know, when's the first time you study the Civil War? Probably like fifth grade, sixth Mm -hmm. grade? And you're like sliding down in your seat when they get to the Dred Scott decision because, you know, this is really terrible and that's my family. And oh my God, they did that. So, no, you're very aware of it. You know? And we're also, I mean, and we're also, you know, while, while you're, um, well, that's a black mark on our family. He also ran one of the most productive courts. And it was during a time of explosive growth in the country. So we're very proud of his role in helping form America. 
What he's known for is the single worst decision ever made by the Supreme Court. If, if you're a family member, it's, it's um, a, little, a little difficult to have that be the only focus. <laughs> it's incomplete. Sitting there, it was pretty clear that Charlie Taney was kind of like Dred Scott Madison. He also had some mixed feelings. Yeah, well, having read, having read a number of his letters, I, you know, I think he was, I think, you know, he, I think he really loved his wife and his family. And I think he was a very loving father. And he was against slavery, it was pretty clear. He thought it was a blot on the national character. He thought slavery was wrong? Are we talking about Taney still? I think, yeah, he, you know, he felt it was wrong and should eventually be just done away with he told me that in one of his legal arguments, Tani totally railed against slave drivers. He said something to the effect of, uh, these people are reptiles who deal in the trafficking of human flesh. Sitting there, Charlie tells me that Roger Tani was trying to save the Union. That somehow, if he ruled that America was a slaveocracy once and for all, that might somehow delay the Civil War. And he was trying to solve the issue of slavery in America, that might be true, but what you can't overlook is, when you read that language, that he was a stone racist. I mean, just was. And, um, And I asked them, like, when you met the Scots, like, what did you feel? Like, what did you, did you feel like you wanted to communicate something to them? And the Blow descendant, you know, the family who originally owned Dred Scott, said, yeah. Yeah, like, we're sorry. <laughs> and I was like, have you ever, I turned to Tani and said, like, have you ever actually apologized? And he was like, I don't know. I don't know if I ever use those words. I don't recall ever using those words. Thank you, Brenda. Next day. Well, welcome to the Dred Scott Reconciliation Forum. I know, well... Uh, Day two at the forum, about 100 people crammed into the grand ballroom of the Hilton. And a preacher. So to begin, to begin today in our proceedings, I'd like to ask if you'd stand with me and go to the Lord in prayer to bless these proceedings today. Led the group in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this day seeking your blessings in this room. And we ask, Lord, that this reconciliation would begin today in a profound way in each of our hearts as we learn from our past to move to our future. Bless us this day, and Lord, we give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people say amen. You may be seated. And then... At this time, we would like for all of the um, descendants, if you will, to please just stand these descendants day. get up on stage. Thank you and good morning, everyone. One by one. I'm so happy to be here as part of the Reconciliation Conference. And they uh, give like a little spiel about hello. Thank you so much. Thank who you they so are, what reconciliation means to them. And a lot of people don't know that Thomas Jefferson's uh, wife, Martha, is a half-sister of Sally Hemings. Things you might not know about their ancestor. They had, they had the same father, John Wells. And then after about five people had spoken. Please welcome Charlie to the stage. Charlie Tani got up to talk. Good morning. So the first thing I'd, I'd like to do is uh, tell you all how uh, glad I am to be here and a uh, real honor and privilege to be here. So let me start with Roger Brooke Tawney and what it was like to grow up as a Tawney. To grow up as a Tawney, in terms of how we feel about him, it's a, real, it's a mixed bag. It's a very mixed thing. Because on the one hand, as a Tawney, you're proud of him. He was one of the longest-serving chief justices the Bible he swore Lincoln in with is the same Bible that President Obama was sworn in on. 
However, that's not what he's known for. What he's known for is one thing. He's known for the Dred Scott decision. And just so we all want to get a handle on that, let me read you a sentence that he wrote. It was his opinion at the time of the Constitution that African-Americans, here's the quote, for more than a century have been regarded as beings of an inferior order. Unfit to associate with white, the right race, so far inferior. They had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. So, you might be proud of him, but you can't duck that. You can't duck that. So, uh, I looked up reconciliation. I looked up this morning, the process of reconciliation. And there are three steps. The first step is apology. The second step is forgiveness. And the third step is a new trust that grows out of that. But some, someone asked Kate about this issue of apology. And what Kate said was, my daughter said, well, she said, you know, a tawny bringing an apology to a Scot is like bringing a Band-Aid to an amputation. It just, it is not enough. But he was like, you got to start somewhere. <laughs> so let's, like, let's make a little history today. From the Tawnies to all the Scots, you have our apology. I spoke to Scott descendants afterwards. Yes. How was that? What did you think of that? Um, so emotional, very much more emotional than I thought. That's great-great-granddaughter Barbara McGregory. No one's ever apologized. Clinton made an apology some years ago, but coming from him didn't mean much. But when Tawny got emotional when he was reading that letter, that was more heartfelt to me than anything else. The apology was okay, but, but his emotion really touched me. Barbara, the Dred Scott descendant, was like, when he choked up reading that, I could feel that. Like, that felt like healing. But... How you doing? Hello. <laughs> then I pull aside her brother. Can I ask you what you're thinking about? How did you respond to all of that? Dred Scott Madison, the one with the eyes. Uh, everything was fine. It's just, uh, to be honest, the last part... I choose my words carefully. Uh, I didn't like it. I don't think somebody should have to apologize for something they didn't do. That's their ancestors. I, I just, I was very uncomfortable with that. I, that's the fact that they're here is apology enough. Apologizing for something your ancestor did. You're part of a gene pool. You didn't do anything. You're judged by your works, not someone else's. Show me that you care. Don't tell me that you're sorry. Tell me that. Uh, you're going to do better. So that's the only comment I have on it. 
couple final notes. When we talked to Dred Scott Madison later, he was pretty clear that Charlie Taney is already doing a lot of good. He's helping the Dred Scott Foundation to raise money. That's why he felt that Charlie didn't need to apologize. Also, when we started the story, there were statues of Roger Brook Taney in Annapolis and in Baltimore. This is actually how the Taunas and Scots, one of the first ways that they'd come together, they had decided collectively on a plan to amend those two statues. Rather than take them down, they had decided to put a Dred Scott statue next to them. That had been the plan. They'd been working on it. They had met with politicians. They'd met with the mayor of Baltimore. But then, as we were finishing up the story... Good Morning Maryland begins now with breaking news. Charlottesville happened. And in the wake of Charlottesville... And we certainly do have some breaking news this morning. The Roger Brook Tawney statue is no longer standing outside the Maryland State House in Annapolis. It's the latest image of a pro-slavery icon to come down in the wake of violent racial clashes in Charlottesville, Virginia. Both statues were taken down in the same week. It was really it was really weird out here. I'm saying about 25 to 30 people out here. Here's what happened. They started to rope off the street and then at 12:20 they started and they hoisted Tawny up. There was a golf clap when Tawny came off the pedestal here and was removed, but other than that, everybody was quiet. Nobody had an opinion on this. And if they did, they kept it to themselves. 145 year history gone here tonight. Now get out of the way. This is all that's left. This is the pedestal that is left. Since this episode originally ran in 2017, Richard Josie, who led me on a tour through Dred Scott's room at Fort Snelling, now runs a consulting company for museums and historical organizations. And one more update. Until recently, a marble bust of Chief Justice Taney sat outside the old Supreme Court chamber at the U.S. Capitol. But in December 2022, Congress passed a bill to replace Tawny's bust with one of Justice Thurgood Marshall, the first Black Supreme Court justice. The legislation states that removing Tawny's bust does not, quote, relieve Congress of its historical wrongs that it took to protect slavery, but it does allow lawmakers to recognize one of the most notorious wrongs that ever happened in one of its rooms. Perfect is a production of WNYC Studios. This episode was produced by Julia Longoria, along with Jad Abumrad, Susie Lechtenberg, Jenny Lawton, Kelly Prime, Sarah Kari, Sean Ramaswaram, and Alex Overington, with Ellie Mistal, Christian Farias, Linda Hirschman, David Gable, and Michelle Harris. It was updated by me, Salman Ahad Khan, Sophie Hurwitz, and with help from Emily Madre. Special thanks to Tara Grove, Dion Riley, Soren Shade, and to Kate Tawny Billingsley whose play A Man of His Time helped inspire this episode. The More Perfect team also includes Emily Siner, Emily Botin, Whitney Jones, Alyssa Eads, Gabrielle Burbet, David Herman, Joe Plord, Mike Kutchman, and Jenny Lawton. Our team is by Alex Orrington, and the episode art is by Candace Evers. If you want more stories about the Supreme Court, we've got you covered. 
Subscribe to More Perfect and scroll back for more than two dozen episodes. Supreme Court Audio is from Oye, a free law project by Justia and the Legal Information Institute of Cornell Law School. Support for More Perfect is provided in part by the Smart Family Fund and by listeners like you. Thank you so much for listening.